This podcast is presented to you by Passion Church and their campus in Alexander City, Alabama. For more information, visit www.mypassion.church. When a pastor came to us and asked us to talk on the Teach on the Tabernacle of David. I, um, I asked everybody last week, how many had ever heard of the Tabernacle of David before I said something about it last Wednesday night? How many have ever, ever heard of the Tabernacle of David? Well, I had never heard of it until about the early 2000s through that time period into the, about the 2005, 2006 when I started reading some books by Tommy Cheney. And that opened my eyes, and I didn't, I thought, gosh, I've been reading the Bible, how did I miss this, you know? But it is a powerful, powerful picture of what I like to call, and what Tommy Tini calls, God's favorite house. It was his favorite house. He had three houses in the Old Testament where he dwelt. He dwelt in the tabernacle of Moses, he dwelt in the tabernacle or tent of David, and he dwelt in the temple of Solomon. Out of those three houses, his favorite house was the tabernacle of David. How do we know that that was his favorite house? Well, because in James, in Acts, I always want to say James, in Acts, we have a situation going on in the church. And James quotes from the Old Testament, Amos, chapter 9 and verse 11. And he quotes a passage of scripture there. And... Um, that passage of scripture was the validation for what James was saying, what was going on in the New Testament at that time, in the new church at that time. And it was the validation. It's what validated what they were talking about. And so we're going to look at what they were talking about tonight and try to hopefully move through that and then get into some other things. But um, I'm not going to go through the whole, uh, read the whole chapter chapter 15 of Acts, because it would take a while. But I'm just going to give you a little bit of an overview. If anybody is familiar, if you read Acts, you kind of will remember this story. Paul and Barnabas had gone to the Gentiles, and they were preaching into the Gentiles. Gentiles were getting saved left and right and coming into the church. And there were a few of the Jews of the old Jewish order that had become Christians, had accepted the Messiah, accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and they were wanting to put a yoke on the Gentiles of circumcision. And Paul and Barnabas said, this ought not be. We shouldn't put this yoke of bondage of the law on the Gentiles. And they gave, and, and so they said, well, you know, we need to go see the apostles in Jerusalem and have a talk about this. We need to have a powwow. So they went to Jerusalem and sat before the apostles' council and those that were gathered there to have this discussion, this debate on um, circumcision, whether or not the Gentile people coming into the church needed to be circumcised as the Jewish nation and Jewish people were circumcised. So Peter gets up and he talks about Cornelius and everything that happened at the house of Cornelius. Everybody know that story? I'm not talking about something that people don't know, right? Peter went and the Spirit of God fell on the house of Cornelius, the Gentile house of Cornelius, and they spoke in other tongues 
which was the same sign that the circumcised Jewish people on the day of Pentecostal, the day of Pentecost, received the same sign of the Holy Spirit sitting on them with the evidence of speaking in tongues. This was the same evidence. And they noticed that and they took note of that being the same evidence. And so Peter said, well, I don't see any reason why they, need to, they can't be baptized. And so they were baptized in water. And so Peter gave this um, this talk about what he had witnessed. And he was very strong talk. And then after him, Paul and Barnabas get up in front of the council. And they began to talk about everything that they had seen. They had seen with the Gentiles and how God was bringing them in, in droves into the kingdom, into the family of God, with the same evidences were going on in all of the people there. And then we come down to James. James stands up in front of the council and he has this to say. You put up Acts 15, 15 through 18. And this is out of the Amplified. He says, and with this, the predications of the prophets agree, or what was written in the Old Testament, what the prophets had prophesied about this moment in time. They agree, after this, I will come back and we re will rebuild the house of David, which has fallen. I will rebuild its very ruins and I will set it up again so that the rest of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name has been invoked, says the Lord, who has been making these things known from the beginning of the world. So right out of the blue, it seems like out of nowhere comes this verse, comes this, this uh, word from right out of the mouth of Amos. Chapter 9 and verse 11. Just hit that real quickly for me, Sonia. I told you I didn't think them things would be in order, but it's up there. And this is what Amos said. And this is where this context comes from, is Amos chapter 9 and verse 11. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David, the fallen hut or booth, the fallen tent, and close up its breaches, and I will raise up its ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old. So here we have, looking on this side of Jesus, we have Amos looking forward and looking backward because he said, in that day, which meaning in the future, in that day. And while he was, while he was prophesying this, the temple of Solomon was in full swing. The temple of Solomon was in full swing. And there was a king sitting on the throne of David while Amos was prophesying this. So he said, in that day, in the future, I'm going to raise up the tabernacle of David that had fallen the hut or booth, close up its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Amen. So here's Amos right here in the middle. Here's what he's talking about in the future. And then he's also talking about something that happened in the days of old. So he's right in the middle of this, prophesying. Now we go fast forward up here to James, and James reaches back and quotes this. And then I want you to notice something. Right after, right after he quotes 
this scripture. Therefore, it is my opinion that we should not put obstacles in the way of and annoy and disturb those of the Gentiles who turn to God. But we should abstain, but we should send word to them in writing to abstain from and avoid anything that has been polluted by being offered to idols and all sexual impurity, eating of meat and animals that have been strangled and tasting of blood. Subject closed. That's it. No more discussion. No more. That settled it. Right then and there. They didn't have any more discussion. It's floor, the floor is closed. It's no longer open. No longer open for discussion. That ends this debate. So there was something in this scripture that these, you have to understand that these were apostles. These were men who knew the word, knew the scripture. When James quoted this, they got a complete picture. They knew exactly what he was saying. They had full knowledge of what, he, what Amos was talking about. They were seeing it fulfilled in their very midst. They had seen it fulfilled when Jesus Christ hung on the cross, died for sins, was dead, buried, and rose again. He established the throne of David forever and ever and ever and ever. There was always now... Someone sitting on the throne of David. Jesus Christ, always sitting on the throne of David. Now, that was one aspect of it. So we have another aspect of it that is uh, the tent of David. And what went on there? And they understood that. They, they had a perfect picture of what James was telling, that it was validated. The Gentiles coming in to the family of God Coming into the kingdom of God, they got a full picture of what he was saying. He was not only saying that they were coming into the throne of David, but they were also coming into the Davidic order of worship, both being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, I wanna, after we've, we've laid this foundation for you, I want to talk a little bit about, I'm kind of, I'm going to read just a few things for you. I don't know about in, in you know, I don't, I, I don't know the scriptures quite like the uh, prophets uh, or quite like the apostles did in that I had a full understanding when I started reading this. I didn't have any idea what James was talking about. I knew that the throne of David had been established through Jesus Christ. But what else needed to be? What else needed to be built up? What else breaches? What else needed to be built? You know, to me, I was thinking, well, that's that should be all there is. Jesus Christ, that should be all there is. What else is he talking about? What else is he trying to bring out in this? And there's some questions that arise out of this. These passages of scripture from the Old Testament and the New Testaments immediately provoke for us today a number of questions that desire answers. Why did the Apostle James quote this passage of Scripture from the prophet Amos? It seems to have nothing, absolutely nothing to do with the immediate context, either before or after. It seems that James takes it right out of context altogether in his use and application of it. Then what has the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David got to do with the Gentiles coming into the gospel dispensation? What is the tabernacle of David? Why not have the Gentiles come into the tabernacle of Moses? Did David have a tabernacle? What was it? What was it all about? Did the Gentiles get into David's tabernacle? Again, 
Where was David's tabernacle at this time? If it is to be built again and its ruins raised up, and if it is to be built again in the days of old, then what does the building again mean? Exactly what did happen in the days of old? Those are all questions that came to my mind, and this author brings them out. Valid, valid questions. It, and we need to talk about those questions so we understand what that scripture means in, in its totality. So the first thing I want to address is, why didn't he talk about the tabernacle of Moses? Why didn't he? Why didn't James quote the tabernacle? Why didn't he say that God was going to rebuild again the tabernacle of Moses? I mean, after all, that was God blessed the tabernacle of Moses. Moses had the, had the picture of what God was saying that was going on in the heavenlies. And he wanted him to establish that down here on this earth. And so Moses took the plan right from Mount Sinai, came down from Mount Sinai, and began to implement the plan of God. So we need to look at why. Why did he not say that he was going to rebuild that tabernacle? What um, eliminates the tabernacle of Moses for being that which God wanted to rebuild? So if, um, Tanya, if you'll put up Jeremiah 7, 12 and 14. Now, in this time when Jeremiah is prophesying this, um, much like in Amos, there, were, there was a lot of apostasy going on. Um, the temple of Solomon was in full swing. But Jeremiah comes now and says, and in, in the context of this, uh, chapter. The people of that day had put a lot of faith in their temple. The temple was the temple, the temple, the temple. They always, now the Lord's not going to let anything happen to us because his temple is here and he's in the temple. His temple is here. He's not going to let anything happen to us. If you read chapter seven of uh, Jeremiah, and I may just kind of look at that just a little bit. I want you to get this picture. It helps you to understand what is in the mind of God when he's talking about this. Um, and especially in verse 4, it says, Trust not in the lying words of the false prophets who maintain that God will protect Jerusalem because his temple is there, saying, This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. So this was their attitude. In that day, their attitude was, we have the temple of the Lord here, and he's not going to let anything happen to us. Look at that beautiful temple and all that's going on in this beautiful, wonderful temple, and the Ark of the Covenant is in that temple, and he's not going to let anything happen to us, and he's not going to let anything happen to that. He wouldn't do that. God wouldn't let anything happen to that. Look what all we've done. Look at how, how good everything is. Look at, oh, how special it is. God wouldn't let anything happen to that. What does Jeremiah say? He says to the people, he said, but, but go now to my place, which is in Shiloh, where I set my name at first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness 
of my people. And then in, in verse 14 of the same chapter, Jeremiah says, Therefore will I do to this house, this temple, which is called by my name, and in which you trust. You only trust in the temple. You don't trust in the God that's in the temple. You only trust in the temple. To which, in, uh, in my name, in which you which is called in my name in which you trust, to the place which I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. So something happened at Shiloh that is very important in understanding the, the uh, process here of getting to the tabernacle of David. Now Shiloh was, if you, anybody knows about Shiloh and have read any of the Old Testament, Shiloh was where the uh, tabernacle of Moses came to be set in a certain place with Joshua. We know that it started in Mount Sinai with Moses, got the complete plan, and it went, traveled through all of the wilderness, traveled all through the wilderness and into uh, the promised land. And then when they got the land and everything was secured, Joshua set up the tabernacle in Shiloh where his name was set first, or as where it says here in, in, um, in this verse, where his name was set first in verse 14. So the ark of God came to Shiloh in the tabernacle of Moses. Now, um, we, so we, it begs the question, well, what happened at Shiloh? What went on at Shiloh that caused Jeremiah to say, out of the mouth of God, that I want to do to this house the same thing I did to Shiloh. So we have to go to 1 Samuel and chapter 2. <clears throat> now the setting here is um, Samuel has uh, come into the house of God, is going to serve the house of God. He was born of Hannah. Hannah asked for him. Hannah said, I'll give him back to you. You give me a son, I'll give him back to you. She did. He's a, uh, probably a youngster here in this setting. And Eli is the judge in, in uh, Israel here. Eli is judging Israel. This is in the, towards the end of the era of the judges. He was the next to the last judge. And he was in that. He was also the high priest in the tabernacle of Moses. So we start in, uh, I want to start in verse 27. It says, A man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus has the Lord said, I plainly revealed myself to the house of your father, forefather Aaron, when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house. Moreover, I selected him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer on my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod before me. And I gave them... On to the house of your father, your forefather, and all the offerings of the Israelites made by fire. Why then do you kick, trample upon, treat with contempt my sacrifice and my offering which I commanded, and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves upon the choicest part of everything, every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel says, I did promise that your house and that of your father, forefather Aaron, should go in and out before me forever. But now, the Lord says, be it far from me, 
For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. And I'm going to continue reading here. Behold, the time is coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your own father's house. And there shall not be an old man in your house. And you shall behold the distress of my house, even in all the prosperity which God will give Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off my altar um, from my altar every man of yours. Some shall survive to weep and mourn over the family's ruin, but all the increase of your house shall die in their best years. And what befalls your, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be a sign to you. In one day they both shall die, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall deal according to what is in my heart and mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. Everyone who is left in your house shall come crouching to him for a piece of silver and a bit of bread, and say, put me, I pray you, into a priest's office so I may have a piece of bread. So here we see God's declaration on the house of Eli and Shiloh. And it was confirmed through Samuel. And in the next chapter, chapter 3, most of you are probably familiar with that. Samuel woke up three times and went to Eli. And Eli said, the next time he calls you, you say, Lord, I'm hearing you. You know, that's my word. Lord, I'm here. And um, he did that. And God spoke almost the same thing to, to Samuel, that Eli's house was ending. It would be no more. <clears throat> and he said, on that day, I perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. You know, the, re the reasons are implicated there, what went on. That's not really um, pointative to what I'm saying. But God made a declaration that day that he was leaving the tabernacle of Moses. And he left. When Hophni and Phinehas presumed upon themselves to take the Ark of the Covenant out and into battle at Ebenezer, the shout went up, but didn't last long. They were extremely, extremely defeated, and the Ark was taken, captured by the Philistines. It spent about six to nine months in the Philistines' cities, and hemorrhoids came on them and the plagues came on them while they were there and the, you know, the gods fell and, and all of that. You, I'm sure, all are familiar with the stories. If you, you can read it for yourself, it's right here in 1 Samuel, coming through about the third or fourth chapter. It recounts that. But I want to read now a specific verse from 1 Samuel 7 and verse 2. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2. Now the ark has gone through the enemy's camp, been through all of those cities, and then they put it on a cart. The Philistines put it on a cart, and they, they knew enough to put some offerings in it. They knew enough to put some sacrifices in it. Kind of interesting. They knew enough to do that. They didn't want to mess with the God that they'd been messing with them anymore. They'd had enough of that. So they built a new cart, 
the two, ca two cows and took the calves home and they sent them on their way and they said if it goes this way then we'll know that God has answered and it was God that did this and, and, and it did. It followed that path. And it did end up in, back in Israel in the field of Joshua and they went and got the ark. They didn't learn too much because they lifted the lid and they died right there. They took the mercy seat off. You take the mercy seat off, there's nothing between you and God if you take the mercy seat away. They took the mercy seat away and they, they died. And I'm just giving you a little overview here. Then they sent it to kareth Jerim. I'm not sure if I'm saying it right there. kareth Jerim, And the ark remained at kareth Jerim a very long time, nearly 100 years I don't know how I missed this verse all of this time that I've been reading this. I had, I, it just never dawned on me that the ark of God stayed away. God's presence stayed away for a hundred years. All through Samuel's entire judgeship. Imagine that. Samuel judging the people, calling on God, and God's somewhere else. He's no longer with His people. He's no longer where He put His name first. He's left there. And all through Saul's reign, and well into David's reign, when it was brought to Jerusalem, for it was 20 years before all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Very significant piece of scripture here. God stayed away. His presence, can you see? They're going through the motions in the tabernacle of Moses. They're bringing the offering, putting it on the altar, of, uh, in the sacrificial altar. They're going through all the motions. They're, the priest is dangling some incense in the Holy of Holies and there ain't nothing there. <laughs> nothing there. Waving smoke for nothing. Waving smoke for nothing. Doing all the motions. Going through all of the stuff. Going through all of the order. And God's presence left and was gone for a hundred years. Waiting. Looking. Searching. For somebody who had the right heart. Hungry. After somebody who would honor him. What did he say back there in the second chapter of Samuel, uh, Samuel? Till I can find somebody who will honor me and I will honor them. It, it, it blows my mind. It just blows my mind. I never, never stopped to consider all the implications of that. Going through the motions. God not even there. God not even there. <sighs> kind of tells me. Now, God is after something. He ain't after the motions. He ain't after doing all the steps just so, so right. He's after your heart. He's after the heart of a true worshiper. And he's not settling for nothing less. 
than the heart of a true worshiper. He, and all through this time, you can see him. He's preparing. He's preparing. He's getting ready. He's setting the stage. He's moving everybody into place. First, he got Samuel into place going over here. Then Saul comes into place. And then the people find out, hey, Saul ain't what we thought he was going to be. He moves and manipulates all of the chess pieces coming into play. Every piece getting ready. And then along comes someone hungry after the heart of God. Someone who said, as the deer pants after the water, so my soul pants after God. Somebody who would be a God chaser. Somebody who was after God. Who wasn't going to stop till he got him. He'd do everything. Move heaven and earth to catch God. And God found somebody who let him catch. He found the person. He said, whoo, I'm going to sit right here and let him come get me. Come on, David. Come get me. Can you just see God? Can you just hear God? I found a place where I could set my name. I found somebody that I could do something in. So to answer the question, why not the tabernacle of Moses? Well, because God didn't stay there. God's presence wasn't happy there. God had something better in mind. God had something that he had blessed but he had something else he wanted to bring them to. Just like I told you last Wednesday night, God, what God has blessed before, he's blessed it. It didn't mean that he didn't bless it, but he's ready to take us to something else. He wants to take us out of that blessing and into the blessing that he has for us. The next blessing, the new blessing, the new realm, the next place in God. And we got to move with the ark, hello. We got to move with it. We don't want to stay back there. We're just a bunch of motions, just a bunch of smoke and mirrors, just a bunch of doing something just to be doing it. We want to move into what God has for us next. That's why not the tabernacle of Moses. And also the tabernacle of Moses is a representation of the law. And the Gentiles wouldn't, couldn't, God didn't want the Gentiles to come into that law of circumcision, that same law. He wanted them to come into the circumcision of the heart. The tabernacle of David. That's the tabernacle he wanted to draw all men unto. That tabernacle. That answers the question, why not the tabernacle of Moses? Why not the temple of Solomon, you may say. Well, the temple of Solomon was a, almost a reenactment of the temple of Moses, except it was um, along with some of the Davidic order of worship, as also came along with it. It was a combination of the two. But it also represents man's pridefulness. Seen here in Jeremiah, we just read, the people had a lot of pride in that temple, and it was their downfall. And God said, I'm going to leave here too. I'm not staying here either. So the house that he decided to rebuild, and he's talked about rebuilding, not only in, in Amos, which was the prophetic scripture, but in Acts, which was James uh, solidifying and validation of that, that he wanted to build the tabernacle of David, rebuild its breaches, rebuild it again. So we're going to just take the last few minutes here to talk about the two aspects of the tabernacle of David. 
And then this will set Ron up into pre uh, teaching for you next Wednesday night. I'm going to bring this a little bit more back in here. But there are two aspects of the tabernacle of David. One aspect is the Davidic kingdom or the throne of David, the house of David, the kingship of David. And we see where in, um, if you pull up Psalms 122 and 5, <clears throat> this is the ruling, the ruling leadership, the rulership, the house, the throne, in, is the Davidic kingdom. It represents the throne of David, where he ruled from. It says, for there the thrones of judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. So we see the house of David is representing up the throne, where he ruled from, his kingdom. Um, rulership, leadership. Kingship. That's what the Davidic kingdom speaks of. That's one aspect of the tabernacle of David. The second aspect of the tabernacle of David is the Davidic worship, which was set up. And it all centers around the ark of God. The Davidic or, or, uh, order of worship centered around the ark of God. I'll go ahead and tell you this. That was the only piece of furniture in the tabernacle of David was the ark. All the rest of the stuff was still back at Shiloh. And then it moved to Gibeon, Mount Gibeon. All of the stuff was back over there. None of that stuff came to the, and I don't mean to say stuff, is mean it, wasn't, it, has, it, it has its representation and it has its meaning. And we taught on that two or three summers ago, the, using the tabernacle of Moses as a, a plan for worship. What I say a while ago, God blessed that. And his blessing was on that. Yeah. But now his blessing is moving to something else. Amen. And we want to move with his blessing. Amen. We want to move where he's going. We want to follow him where he's going. Amen. So <clears throat> the Davidic uh, worship centers around the ark of God, which was set in the tent of David or the tabernacle of David. If you'll pull up um, 2 Samuel six seventeen, Did I give you that one? No? Hmm. How about 2 Chronicles 1.4? I might have forgot those. There. Good. Okay. They brought, the ark in, they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. That tells us that, that this is the tent of David. It's not the house of David. This is the tent of David. Both of them are the tabernacle of David. They represent two different things. The throne of David, the house of David, the Davidic kingdom of David represents the kingship of David. The tabernacle of David as in the Davidic worship represents the tent of David, which is the priestly. It's the priestly representation. Um, pull up, did I do Isaiah 16.5? Uh, I did it in a hurry. Isaiah, I want to turn to Isaiah 16.5. This pulls together both of these aspects. It says, Then in mercy and loving kindness shall a throne be established. And one shall sit upon it in truth and faithfulness in the tent 
of David judging and seeking justice and being swift to do righteousness. Now, we all know who is he talking about. Who is Isaiah talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. But what does he use to talk about Jesus? He talks about the throne of David, and he talks about the tent of David. So both aspects are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Both aspects are the tabernacle of David. They both mean the same thing. They have two representations. The throne of David is kingly. The tabernacle or tent of David is priestly. They both are represented in David and they both find their fulfillment in Christ Jesus. That's what you and I have come into. That's what Israel comes into. That's what the Gentiles come into. All under the headship of Jesus Christ, which is king and priest and prophet. All three rolled up into one. David was all three. He was a type and a shadow of Messiah. David on this side of Messiah was a type and a shadow of him. And fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's pictured here in this scripture. We see it come together. Both aspects. The throne is established. Established in Jesus. The throne of David was promised. God promised. That was the covenant that God had with David. I will establish your throne forever. There will always be a seed of David on the throne forever. It was established here. The throne of David, it will be established. We know it was established in Jesus. And one shall sit upon it in truth and faithfulness in the tent of David, in the Davidic order of worship of David. It will be set up there, truth and faithfulness in this tent of David, judging and seeking justice. Judging and seeking justice to who? To everybody. To the world, reconciling in, uh, the world to himself through the kingship and also through the order of worship that David established. The praise and the worship established through David. This, to me, brings everything into one concerning the two aspects of David. There's been a lot of uh, argument through the years about what the tabernacle of David. Was it the throne of David? Was it the tent of David? What was it? It was both of them. It was both of them wrapped up into one, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, fulfilled in him. So we see now in Acts where um, James quoted from Amos, David's house or throne saying that the Gentiles are come into David's house, David's throne, David's kingdom through Christ, the son of David. Also speaks of David's tent pitched for the ark of God and the priestly ministrations saying the Gentiles are come into David's order of worship through Christ, the greater son of David. One is kingly, one is priestly. Both are brought together in Christ Jesus who is our eternal, forever living king and priest. So that, that concludes what I'm going to talk about tonight. And we're going to carry this further. We're going to really get into... I, I, I have to pull myself back because I, I want to get over here and all of this good stuff that's coming about worship, about what... I didn't, under, I didn't know all of the stuff about what David set up and what significance it has and what... what you talk about a picture of what we, you and I, are supposed to be participating in and experiencing on an everyday basis. I get so excited about it. And, and I, I had to lay some 
be kind of boring a little bit and lay some specific foundations, but I want you to get a complete understanding. Or else you can sit there and ask questions. Well, wh why this? Why that? I don't want you to ask no questions when we get done. I want you to be fully um, taught and learned Amen. on this picture that Amos paints for us of what he saw in the future, what he saw coming, what he, what he looked back in the past and saw happening and prophesied that this was coming in the future. This was going to be fulfilled and we were going to get to experience it. They experienced some of it. They experienced it there on Mount Zion where the tent of David was pitched. And it was a, it, what did we say? The Old Testament is a type and a shadow, is an A-type of what was going to be fulfilled and walked out in the New Testament. So we see that, and we're going to see exactly what that looks like. It's going to paint a beautiful picture for you. What all went on in the tent of David? What all went on there that we are supposed to be walking in, living in, moving in? What God himself said, that's what I want. That's what I want. That's my favorite house. That's my favorite house. I liked what went on there best out of everything else. It was good in the tabernacle of Moses. It was good in the temple of Solomon. But what went on in David's tabernacle? Woo, man, you talk about some good stuff. Now, that's what God says. That's what God said. That's what I'm after. That's what I'm looking for. That's what he's saying. That's what, that's what I want to establish again. That's what I want to build. In. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it and pray that you are blessed by God's word. For more information about Passion Church, visit www.mypassion.church.